and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. In recent weeks, U.S. President Joe Biden has hosted both European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen and German Chancellor Olaf Scholz at the White House. The visits of these two high-profile European leaders came at an important moment for the transatlantic partnership. While the need for continued support to Ukraine remains top of mind, other key issues, such as relations with China and tensions surrounding the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act, were also on the agenda. Following the meetings, there is some cause for optimism, including reports of a potential transatlantic agreement on supply chains for critical raw materials and statements reflecting common approaches to Russia and China. But beyond the surface, differences of opinion remain both between the transatlantic partners as well as among different constituencies within the United States and Europe. So to discuss all of this and more, we're very happy to welcome Max Bergman and David Kleinman to the podcast. Welcome to you both. Thanks for having us. Thank you so Uh, much. As everyone knows, a brief bio on both our guests. Uh, Max Bergman is the director of the Europe Program and the Stewart Center in Europe Atlantic and Northern European Studies at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And David is a visiting fellow at Bruegel, where he focuses on the climate and trade policy nexus, as well as legal and diplomatic challenges arising from transatlantic and international climate and trade cooperation. All right. I like to start with the big picture. Um, And so, Max, maybe we can start with you. Um, What jumps out most uh, coming out of the meetings that we've had? Why were they significant if they were significant? So, you know, I think I think the meetings are both I I, I think are significant. I think the Schultz meeting uh, was a bit more. He hasn't been here in a year. Macron had come for a state visit was a bit more routine diplomacy. I think the significant aspect of that, I think, came when um, uh, senior administration officials had publicly sort of expressed their annoyance at the whole uh, tank affair. Uh, essentially, I think it was uh, Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, noting that, well, we're providing tanks because you know, basically Germany was being difficult and demanded that we provide tanks in order for them to provide tanks. Uh, and that, and noting that that what big countries do is they lead, and so we're leading. Uh, and I think that was probably worthwhile uh, on the U.S. part because, in it, you know, when it comes to security assistance for Ukraine, it's going to be a bit harder for the U.S. going forward in the next year uh, and and you know through this Congress that the ability of Congress to pass new appropriations for Ukraine security assistance is going to be quite challenging. It doesn't mean our aid will stop. Uh, but it means we're going to have to reallocate funding in the way that Europeans are doing to support Ukraine, which is just bureaucratically more difficult. So if we're allocating funding, uh, precious sort of security assistance funding for Ukraine, for Abrams tanks, perhaps that really could have gone to uh, uh, items that would be more suitable for, for the Ukrainian forces. So, you know, I think that that's something that the administration was probably discussing um, and in general, if you look at the statement of the Schultz meeting, it was fairly routine. We're trying to get on the same page, and that's worthwhile, right? Good for American president and German chancellor to get together. The von der Leyen meeting, I think, in some ways was more significant because there was a lot of business in front of the U.S. and EU. I think in, in that sense, it sort of represents a degree of sea change where kind of the center of gravity of a lot of the work being done on transatlantic relations is happening uh, in Brussels with the EU 
where, you know, having to discuss how uh, IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act implementation is going to go. Uh, there's a lot of concerns in the EU and there's a working group set up. Uh, I think there was some progress there, maybe not as much as many Europeans were hoping. But uh, but general, there was an effort, I think, to kind of tone down some of the tension, some of the high level uh, outrage and rhetoric that was over the IRA uh, to really put a, a good um, a good face forward. Also, a lot of good, uh, strong rhetoric when it came to, to China and, uh, and, and uh, unity there. And of course, on Ukraine, and we're seeing a lot happening uh, on the EU side when it comes to uh, EU defense. So that that meeting, I think, you know, if you just compare the statements, the official statements, which, you know, you shouldn't always do because a lot happens outside of the statements. But the the one with uh, von der Leyen was quite lengthy. The one with Schultz was was very brief, just a paragraph. And I think that speaks to there is a lot of business to, to work through. And I think um, I think uh, a lot happened uh, productively in especially in the von der Leyen meeting. Yeah, before we jump in on China and IRA, IRA mediation, David, any reactions? No, I, uh, I entirely agree with with Max uh, for the regarding the characterization of of the two meetings. Uh, the Scholz meeting was really just a, a working meeting uh, with, with the president uh, that uh, occurs uh, regularly, or you know, has to had to occur uh, a year after the last visit. Um, and uh, and there was a lot on the agenda uh, for uh, President von der Leyen, uh, a lot of uh, economic tensions uh, to uh, to discuss and a lot of processes to uh, uh, to align and uh, and therefore um, no, I, I think that's a that's a correct characterization. As you know, I'm I'm not I'm as an as a trade uh, person expert and then rather less of a security. Uh, expert, I, I, uh, I, I'm hesitant to uh, to discuss or to to comment on the tank issue. However, I, I will I will say that uh, that this was in fact uh, uh, interpreted in in Germany at least as a as a win uh, negotiation strategy from from the Chancellor. Um, so that this has caused some irritation in in Washington D.C. Um, I, I, I would say is rather normal. Um, you know, you can't always get what you want, and and therefore um, I, I feel uh, that was uh, you know an issue that that perhaps uh, stood in the way of, of of wonderful photo ops and, and length, lengthy press conferences. But at the same time, uh, you know, I think uh, they they've had they certainly had a had a productive working meeting. The von der Leyen uh, meeting was charged with uh, the IRA response piece um, and uh, and also uh, efforts by the United States, I believe, to uh, bring mm. the EU in line on the, on the China strategy. And there has been some some rhetoric uh, that we may want to dissect a little bit, uh, you know, um, in in the next uh, couple of minutes. Before I go to IRA, Jim, did you want to jump in? Yeah, just a couple of uh, remarks uh, there. And the first of all, just to, I don't know, see what you all think, but first with Max um, and Schultz, I I agree with with everything you said. I I've, I also, during the visit, I commented in various fora that um, this was more of a routine meeting, it's a working meeting, et cetera. But I just can't help but think uh, there was probably a, a uh, agenda item or a one-on-one -on -one meeting or something where the Germans might have been taken to the woodshed a little bit about tactics, about uh, German leadership, about putting us in a difficult situation or something. I, I, I say that because the meeting happened so quickly uh, after a lot of back and forth on the Leopard 2s. 
and I just my feeling is that uh, yes, there was it was good for them to get together, etc. But I think there was some more significance behind the scenes. Uh, that that hasn't leaked out. Uh, that where there might have been some uh, some words uh, from Biden or his people uh, towards the Germans saying, "Let's we got to find another way uh, to work together on this." This what's happened made us look bad on the on the Leopard Twos, and we don't want to be put in a situation like that. It's my guess. I think there was some words like that. Max, I want to hear what you say, but Jim, I'm I'm surprised that you would think that. I mean, this administration has been really kind of soft on Germany the whole time and kind of would rather have them as a partner in confronting all of these challenges. And so it's been a pattern that they've been quite easy on Berlin. But Max, I want to know what you what you think. I agree on that. Uh, but I think in this particular case, though, you know, there's this, this, this administration when it comes to Europe, and this is going to be something I'm going to talk to David about. This administration, when it comes to Europe, is a lot of rhetoric and smiles and a lot of, uh, you know, unicorns and, and rainbows and love you guys, you know. Um, and uh, but I do think in this case, uh, I think there are people in the Pentagon. Well, I think people on the NSC staff who were pissed off uh, and felt jerked around. And I think so. It might not have been Biden saying it because he's, he's the unicorn of all unicorns. You know, let's all embrace. I, but I think. And so is Jake. So, but I think there's some others there on the NSC staff who might have pulled their counterpart aside and said, "Don't mm-hmm. screw with us like this again. You made us all look bad, and you put us in a bad place." That's my guess. I could be totally wrong. But, but Max, your your point, and then David, just one thing for you too. Yeah. No, I think um, I think you may be onto something, Jim. And uh, you know, the trip uh, came about rather quickly. There wasn't a lot of advanced warning, and there wasn't. You know, we had sent at CSIS sort of a request to Schultz's office, say, hey, if you want to you know, come by CSIS. But there wasn't a lot of, of, uh, of public uh, activity no. around Schultz's visit. There wasn't uh, a joint press conference. Um, there wasn't one with von der Leyen either, but von der Leyen came out and did a press conference. And I do think that there may have been um, a bit of please don't jerk us around like that. Um, at least I hope so. Uh, actually, because uh, I think there is this view, uh, and I think the administration plays into it by uh, expressing a lot of kind of, I think I would describe maybe as happy talk to uh, our European partners that our funding for Ukraine uh, is is not going to get more difficult, uh, given the new congressional situation. Uh, and And I think that's important for the Europeans to begin to sort of reckon with, is that Let's, I mean, I hope I'm wrong and I hope, you know, Congress comes forward, but, you know, it, it, it seems doubtful t- to me that that will be the case. And so I, I think that that's, I hope the administration was like, okay, we we need to be a little bit more aligned here. We can't have this stuff playing out in the press. Right. Uh, and, and we've seen, you know, I think Germany since um, be a bit more aggressive, at least when it comes to uh, moving the tanks forward, uh, trying to push other partners. So hopefully... I hope that is the case, Jim. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, you're right. There's it wasn't a state visit like um like Macron, but there's usually at least a little ruffles and flourishes. There's a little bit of love, you know, done yeah. publicly. And this is Germany for God's sake. It's not some, you know. So anyway, uh I, I just think I just think they the they they it was a downbeat visit, and I think it was a punishment a little bit there, frankly. Um, from an administration that doesn't like to punish, you know, I think this was a little bit of a, but David, real quick, if I may for you, and also your comment on what we just said too, but, but on, on the IRA, 
you know, I, I was I was pretty surprised that after the Vanderlyn um, uh, visit, um, a lot of the a lot of what was agreed about the way ahead on the IRA, it seemed like almost the same talking points that were after uh, Macron left. I mean, they didn't talk about tweaking the legislation like Biden did, but it that didn't sound like much had happened between the Macron visit uh, and the Vanderlyn uh, uh, visit. I mean, again, this administration is, they love working groups. I mean, if you remember what, the first year, they had a big EU meeting and oh my God, working groups out. I mean, but I'm not sure anything emerged except for a lot of fun discussions around the table. So I'm wondering, David, did anything happen between Macron and and this visit? And do you think something's actually going to come from it uh, in terms of something on the U.S. side? I think the Europeans uh, and within the EU, I think they are they're doing things to try to internally do something to push back on the IRA, but I'm not so sure Washington's giving much. I think they're kind of going through the, the, oh, let's have a working group and, you know, check that box. So anyway, over to you. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much, Jim. Um, I'm I'm split in between a comment on German security policy and and the European uh, economic policy. But let me let me perhaps just very briefly um, say uh, something about uh, the German view on the on the leopards. Um, you know, and we are really in a speculative uh, territory here. We do not know anything about any, you know, uh, behind the scenes conversation that have happened. Um, so, you know, um, I will just say perhaps that uh, Germany does have domestic politics, too, uh, that uh, the chancellor has to cater to a domestic audience uh, that sees that Germany is the second largest provider of military aid uh, to Ukraine, uh, that the European Union is by now uh, providing uh, more uh, financial and military combined assistance uh, to Ukraine than the United States. Uh, that uh, Germany is doing a lot and is at the same time, has been at the same time over the um, you know, course of the war, uh, banged over the head from various sides uh, for uh, a lack, a perceived lack of contribution that at the same time has exceeded the contributions from uh, pretty much everyone except the United States. And then again, there's the European versus um, uh, versus uh, the United States, uh, you know, comparison uh, on on this aid. So, you know, that just for context. But, um, you know, I, I would really, you know, encourage um, everyone to take into account the perspective of sending, uh, you know, single-handedly as the German Chancellor, um, hundred, perhaps hundreds of tanks or dozens and perhaps, you know, 100, 200 tanks into battle with Russia. Um, this, you know, without any other uh, country providing, uh, you know, significant amounts of uh, main battle tanks, um, which is, you know, something that any German chancellor would be extremely reluctant to do. So the symbolic value of uh, having the United States on board with the Abrams tanks, I think, uh, cannot be underestimated. And uh, and and should really uh, you know be taken into account. Now they're sending, I think, uh, thirty of of those tanks, and and this is really creates the balance in perception uh, that the chancellor needed. Uh, you know, in, not so much uh, for the value of it, uh, but but just as you know, uh, a a coalition of countries that is moving in lockstep uh, on on these security issues. 
Um, so no. that 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 was the important uh, the important point for the chancellor to make, and I do not believe uh, for a single minute that he does care about um, the the press conference or 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 the visibility in Washington D.C. He's a very sober thinking a very sober thinking man who is uh, doesn't even care enough about his communications. So you know there's there's uh, you know he really this is really about substance. Of uh, of a joint of a joint approach. So um, the perception in Germany, I think, is is that he has done very well on this on this and you know in this regard. On uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, I think the um, the issue is much more complicated, and we would really have to stay, take a, um, a a step back to assess what is really at stake. And uh, you know we are, as you say, uh, there are working groups, there are negotiations about you know the the nitty gritty um, of uh, IRA. You know certain provisions that have been tweaked that allow the European Union's now to provide or would potentially allow the European Union to to provide battery components and critical minerals. We are not a big exporter of critical minerals or battery components to the United States at the moment. Um, possibly want to be so in the future domestic assembly will still happen uh, of these evs will still still happen in the united states so these are somewhat bizarre um exaggerated subject matters uh when we uh when we talk about commercial diplomacy what is really at stake here is uh the and you know we this is this is not a european union concern it's more a broader concern the toxicity of the IRA when it comes to production subsidies and drawing investments away, not only from the European Union, and I would say the European Union will be fine, uh, but from uh, you know fast industrializing uh, developing countries as well that uh, you know are competing for scarce capital, and uh, and so you know we are um, you know and I completely agree with you that. Um, the talks that are happening that von der Leyen, ha von der Leyen has are not addressing uh, these major concerns uh, that are also including uh, the, the global south. And uh, and for that matter, um, you know, yes, there is some little progress. There will be uh, some empty shell um, critical raw materials agreement uh, to uh, to provide von der Leyen with a political deliverable um, that she's uh, that she's so keen in. But but it doesn't solve the bigger issue, and and that is that uh, this is perhaps the best uh, that that Congress could have was able to do. But it is a suboptimal uh, a climate policy for many countries, and it 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 causes um, it now causes a subsidy race. We're in the middle of a subsidy race uh, that the European Union is entering, uh, that other uh, jurisdictions are are entering, and that others are not entering. And we should be mostly worried about those. Right. Thank you. Excellent. There was a very flashy Politico headline, Max, and I don't know if you caught this story, but it was the don't burn coal, burn your ideals, Europe's plan to rival Chinese industry. Um, I don't know if you have any kind of comments or, I mean, I guess this idea of a subsidy race or, I mean, are Europeans throwing their ideals out the window in order to compete with China? Are we basically, are you know, the United States and China essentially doing what we have long criticized China for doing itself? Well, look, I mean, I, I saw that headline and I, I thought it was interesting. This one the ideals that Europe is throwing out essentially is the attachment or or kind of the traditional free market neoliberal uh, economic ideals for industrial policy. And I, you know, I, I, I 
I definitely take the, the points that David um, has, has, has brought up. I do think that, look, in the United States, there has been a political turn against, um, against free trade. Uh, and the, we have seen the decline of manufacturing in this country. That is seen by President Biden as a real uh, political liability. Uh, there's been a lot of talk in this administration about a foreign policy for the middle class. In the beginning of the administration, they didn't really know what that meant, and they were trying to figure out how to define it. They still probably don't quite know what it means. But uh, but part of what there's been, there has been a recognition, in I think, amongst uh, the climate community in the United States, that trying to do climate policy the way the Europeans do it was just not going to happen. It was not possible. We tried to do a cap-and-trade uh, legislation during the first uh First, uh, first two years of the Obama administration, it didn't pass. It passed the House, didn't pass the Senate, which would have uh, basically created an emissions trading scheme and, and created a price on carbon. Would have been great, uh, but there wasn't political support for it. But what there is political support for in the United States is opening up the wallet and spending a lot of money, and that is the tools that we have to accelerate the climate transition. And I'm a little bit, and I think I, I think the IRA has raised a lot of issues. A lot of things that we're going to have to work through, a lot of problems, a lot of challenges. But that's because it does a ton. It is so massive. It does so much. And so when we talk about subsidies, and it's they are subsidies, but what they're also doing is paying me to rip out my gas boiler in my house, in my you know 120-year-old house, and put in heat pumps, which I'm probably going to do. So that is a subsidy to me to accelerate the, uh, the clean transition. And I think one of the things that it is going to be market distorting. It's going to have uh, issues. We need to figure out, you know, there's huge, like it was a mistake that the EU was not uh, involved in the, in the uh, in, in it because we don't have a free trade agreement with the EU nor the UK. Uh, that I think was a mistake in, in Bill writing. David and I, I think had gone back and forth uh, on Twitter about, about this. But um, so there's, there's huge issues that need to be worked through. But the broader story here is that the United States is throwing a ton of money to accelerate the clean transition. Some of that money is going to be wasted. Some of that money is going to create inefficiencies. But some of that money is going to have people like me do things that decarbonize, that accelerate the, the transition to electric vehicles. And I think we don't want to lose sight of that. And just one maybe broader point about this. I This is a perhaps counterintuitive point because there's so much rancor over, over the IRA. I think if the United States had not passed the IRA, I think it would have been a major problem for transatlantic relations over the next decade that the United States wouldn't have taken any action on climate. And then let's just say you have the DeSantis or Trump administration pulls out of Paris and the Chinese come calling on Europe and say, well, we're taking action on climate. Anti-Americanism in Europe skyrockets. Uh, China is actually you know, kind of our friend and they're doing stuff on climate while America has, has Trump or an anti-European president. So to me, this causes tons of issues uh, and we got to try to work through them the best we can. We got to try to mitigate some of the challenges. But I think at the end of the day, uh, it's uh, going to accelerate the clean transition here in this country. And I think that's that's ultimately really beneficial. Yeah, David, do you want to respond? And then also, if you want to get a little bit just to summarize where we are on Europe's IRA response, like what are what what it, what is Europe doing to respond? Right. Um, thank you. There, there's a lot. There's a lot in there. Um, I think. I think uh, Max made a made a very good good point that 
uh, that this uh, this bill is ultimately you know commendable and it's great that the US is moving uh, on climate and uh, and this is very welcome in in, in Europe uh, everybody is very happy that there is climate legislation um that you know at the same time uh, we you know and and these issues may not be politically solved in the in the short term uh, but it, it it is important that we take a sober look um uh, take a step back and 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 take a look at um, what uh, would be an ideal climate policy and and how we could possibly uh, get there in the future how what kind of subsidies uh, sh you know should we we should inform uh, the public and inform our politicians take the opportunity of these frictions that it creates subsidy rates uh, you know inefficiencies huge amounts of wasted taxpayers money um, in order to, uh, you know, in order to uh, educate ourselves of, you know, what uh, could be done better in the medium term, and uh, you know, there is a relatively, uh, a relatively small, uh, you know, compared to the overall amount, there's a relatively small amount of of toxic money in there, and and that relates to uh, to uh, the, the the production uh, and investment. Uh, tax credits uh, that make you know about 40 40 billion uh, US dollars of course and the local content requirements which uh, uh, will be mimicked by various uh, economies around the world which overall will create a more fragmented trade less efficient uh, less efficient global economy and uh, eventually uh, a, a clean tech glut uh, and uh, and uh, you know and and problems in the global south to industrialize um, uh, in during uh, the green transition, and that is that is uh, I, I think you know a key concern and in in the community of economists in in, in particular is uh, you know decarbonizing the global south uh, while uh, you know sort of uh, re or, or not reinforcing uh, existing inequities. Uh, we we need to be very very careful of the implications of these policies uh, for the perceptions of the global north of the west. In the global south, uh, the neo-colonial you know, perceptions of neo-colonialism or green imperialism are real in the global south. If we add on, you know, to handing out billions and billions of production subsidies and, you know, um, you know, regulated by local content requirements, as well as uh, as well as CBAMs that, you know, adjust for no discernible domestic uh, uh, carbon taxing, uh, then we are, you know, this creates perceptions in 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 industrializing developing countries uh, that no one cares about cooperation with them and no one cares about employment and and their development and that is that cannot be uh, that cannot be in the interest of the United States uh, nor the European Union nor any uh, you know OECD rich uh, nation so you know that uh, I, I think is is something that will have to be con you know sort of tackled in cooperation um, with uh, with you know in the, in the G7 context and the OECD context and uh, and to that we develop uh, subsidy practices a code of conduct that takes these interests into account and uh, looks beyond uh, our our own borders um this uh, i believe it should be must be part of any sane uh, security policy um as well uh, on the eu side i think you know the response is is relatively um, is relatively complex, uh, in fact, in that uh, we have uh, various um, signals and efforts and pieces of legislation that have been uh, dropped uh, over the last week and prior and have been announced uh, for the future. 
um, that um, you know are are you know creating a lot of confusion somehow about what's really in there. Uh, you know what what are we what are we really doing? Are we are we you know doing away with free market liberalism? Uh, you know, or are we you know free trade not more not our paradigm anymore? And uh, the uh, the response uh, to that uh, is is more or less it depends on what exactly we're looking at. Uh, we have to um, you know analyze very very closely uh, the the pieces of legislation, the Net Zero Industrial Act, um, and the um, crisis framework, state aid guidelines that have been that have been put forward um, over the last week, and and come to a, a more mature assessment. But uh, but maybe like once. Uh, uh, you've you've um, you know you, maybe you want to ask another question or or Max wants to respond. Um, maybe we can we can talk about this a little bit more uh, further down the road. Yeah, no, I mean, I don't I don't fundamentally I think disagree with a, um, a lot of what David was uh, saying. I think one of the big problems uh, right now with U.S. policy isn't really the IRA, but there isn't necessarily a corresponding trade policy uh, that uh, that could you know, help mitigate some of these issues. And uh, we haven't seen an effort by the administration to negotiate a free trade agreement with the UK, for instance. Uh, and I think we have very limited ambition when it comes to the working with the EU economically. And in, in fact, we should be, the IRA should hopefully be a catalyst to say, okay, uh, we don't have a free trade agreement, but our, you know, trade, our tariffs are very low. We should figure out a way that we can uh, increase our economic cooperation. And, you know, that's not the same thing as uh, many of the unpopular trade agreements that the, uh, you know, that were brought up in the past. These are trade agreements with with close allies and partners. So I think that's something the administration should consider. The one other thing I would just say is that a lot of this is about China. And the reason why the local content requirements are there are not about the Europeans, but to not have what happened when Germany put in uh, incentives and subsidies for people to put solar on their roofs and suddenly all that money goes to Chinese solar manufacturers. Uh, and, and you know, there are issues with Chinese solar manufacturers and, and human rights concerns. Uh, and though, and also not wanting to just simply subsidize uh, Chinese manufacturing and wanting to bring manufacturing back home and actually build up uh, a real viable clean energy, uh, energy industrial sector uh, where the U.S. has big, companies that then um, then are, are can produce a lot. And I think when we think about the global South and we think about what the future holds, I mean, the hope is that we do have companies that can then go and, uh, and expand our clean energy production and sales in, in the rest of the world so that this helps broadly uh, accelerate the, the clean energy transition, not just here in the United States, but elsewhere. Thank you both for your great responses. I really, really appreciate it. And, and David, Jackie, just to clarify one thing, when I was talking about uh, the, the visit of, the, um, of Schultz, uh, I, I, think, I, think, I, I think the administration does, and so do the American people in the West, understand uh, you know, Germany's, uh, not only the politics, but also how much Germany has done. So I just want you to know that, that that's, I think in this particular case, I think it was just the drama behind the leopard too. I think there were probably people in the NSC biting their fingernails just because of the drama itself. So I think that's the only thing. Otherwise, I think, uh, you know, I salute Germany for sure. But uh, Max, you, you said something that really prompted a question. And, and that is, you're absolutely right about the administration not having done 
uh, by this time, uh, a trade agreement with the EU or with the UK. And I thought that was kind of interesting. Uh, uh, you know, if it was the Trump administration, um, you know, I, I know why. <laughs> but it's the Biden administration. And uh, and I would have thought by now uh, there would have been something on the books. Is it are we in the middle of doing a negotiation? It's just taking a long time or or why are we so slow to make this happen? Uh, no, I, I, I don't think there's any prospect of a U.S.-U.K. free trade agreement, or at least if there is, they're keeping it very, very close home, very secret. Um, and I think, I think, look, the politics of trade has really shifted. Uh, and it was never, you know, tr trade agreements, if you look at a lot of the votes, were not passed with, uh, you know, a strong Democratic support in, in the House. They were usually strong, a lot of Democratic defections, but general, but large Republican support. And what we've seen is that there isn't now strong Republican support for trade agreements. Democratic support for trade has probably stayed about the same as where, where it was. So if you're a president, you're looking at the political dynamic, bring forward trade agreements isn't that popular. And then there's also an effort by President Biden to be seen as sort of working class Joe. Uh, and where are trade agreements incredibly unpopular? Well, in a lot of the upper Midwest, in Ohio, Wisconsin, Michigan, states that are important for re-election, but states that are also just, you know, critically important. And and I think there is, and that, that's maybe putting a, a too political gloss on it. I also think there's been a shift in a lot of uh, uh, think, economic thinking, particularly among, within the Democratic Party, that, you know, letting China in the WTO really embracing uh, uh, free trade was, you know, had there were winners and there were losers and that we didn't, as a country, really think about the broader um, uh, political and geopolitical dynamics of that. And so that's where I think you see the shift toward a greater embrace of industrial policy, a turn against the WTO. And I'm not saying that's good I'm uh, necessarily. I just think that that's where the dynamic uh, has shifted uh, here in the U.S. Well, that's absolutely fascinating. And so the era of peace through free trade and being a free trader and all of this, uh, COVID uh, taught us a lesson and uh, the Trump administration taught us all a lesson. Uh, I mean, so I, that's interesting that we're really a very different country now when it comes to free trade. That's a that's a big deal. But thank you, David. You want to add to that? But but uh, Max, that's a thank you for that. Well, yeah, I, just... David, I'd be curious about how that like whether is that per, is that perceived in Europe? I mean, that is that the view that you all have of what's going on in the United States? Like, how how are those changes being interpreted? That that obviously uh, that certainly depends on on who you ask. Uh, but uh, but I can give you I can give you my perception, and that is that uh, the Trump administration has exploited uh, you know with with uh, with strong uh, populism, of course, um, the, the 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 potential of uh, frustrated. Uh, working class Americans in in swing states and 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 uh, is catering uh, to this um, has put American trade policy on a vastly different track uh, has uh, has uh, you know ended uh, decades of support for for multilateral trade has um, and it has really made uh, you know politicians in the United States vulnerable uh, to the accusation that they're not doing enough for for working class Americans and uh, unfortunately. Uh, the unions are uh, very much uh, aligned with uh, these fears and anxieties in that uh, the Democrats uh, now have to, uh, you know, even, you know, are, are somewhat in a, in a in a bidding race with with the far right to uh, uh, to, uh, you know, uh, 
not only not scale back the protections that the Trump administration has afforded, which is impossible because it is, it's so explosive, it would be so explosive to do that, but at the same time to even increase uh, potentially those those protections and add to them and and uh, and show the working class American and the unions that they really care about domestic uh, domestic production capacity and and manufacturing, uh, which has been uh, suffering um, to um, overwhelming extent through. Uh, automation and to a small extent uh through displacement of trade so this is really you know just to bring the narrative uh, uh, uh you know put the narrative back on uh, on a factual basis uh, of course the populism that trump has embraced and um, and is and has uh, been now now put on a on a on a repeat track um is uh is 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 not uh, it does not reflect reality and uh, you know the Europeans obviously hope that at some stage uh, there will be um, a a a, re a a a realignment with the facts on on what trade has actually done that is added far more jobs in export sectors than it has cost in terms of manufacturing displacement and that it is really um increasing productivity and and auto and the the technology and and automation that has cost jobs uh, in 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 the manufacturing sector and and so you know bringing uh bringing uh, the conversation and the debate and the discourse back to to a factual level uh, is important is unfortunately very very unpopular in DC right now, and it is, uh, and it is of course much easier uh, to blame uh, the the China phenomenon um, for um, uh, you know on on that note because we we can show we can point at um, you know not domestic policy failures uh, but uh, but at a at a foreign strategic adversary um, uh, that uh, uh, that that we don't quite understand uh, culturally perhaps and uh, and so that is um, you know that is far away and uh, and and is rising and and in, in some instances is a, is a, is a is a security concern. So you know the Europeans hope that there will be that there will be um, um, a change in, in in narrative, a change in debates. But we're also quite aware um, in what you know about the domestic political conditions in the United States and uh, the threat from the far right that uh, um, that does make it very difficult not to cater uh, to um, to those uh, who are in precarious. Um, uh, working conditions and uh, and fear fear for the loss of their of their jobs. Let me ask you a little bit more about that foreign strategic adversary that you were just referring to. Um, and there's been some reporting um, about potential divisions within the European Union, right, on, on China, and some some of this reporting about dissatisfaction in particular in the European Council about the Commission's more hawkish approach to China. Can you talk a little bit about, about that? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Von der Leyen's visit has been really, really interesting from a European perspective in that uh, she's um, she's always been known to uh, go a little bit off script and uh, and uh, and to not not to consult with member states prior and even uh, you know some other departments in the European Commission uh, on what she's going to do uh, next. And uh, and in fact, she's uh, you know since Davos, since her speech in Davos, where she you know which was meant to be a sort of a response to the Inflation Reduction Act uh, and uh, then uh, communication by the Commission on on industrial plans. Um, on clean tech industrial plans, she's blamed rhetorically China uh, for uh, for many 
uh, for many uh, of of the of 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 the issues and 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 not uh, and and very much uh, had very friendly rhetoric uh, for the United States. Von der Leyen is known to be an ideological transatlanticist. That is not necessarily a, ba a bad thing at all. Um, but but she's also known to to uh, to not consult member states, and uh, we are uh, seeing. Uh, member states concerns uh we have you know hearing the voices here in town um people are wondering uh you know what on earth she thought uh, she was doing when uh, she spoke about uh, outbound investment controls for instance and uh, and and you know so she's been plating a number of things uh, in her speeches uh, you know, for her services in a way, you know, to uh, to then figure out how to do. And uh, and so, uh, you know, we, we have a European Council here uh, next week on the 24th of, of March, and uh, this might become a little bit of a reckoning for for Ursula von der Leyen. Um, and and so we um, um, we that that is that is that is one part. We, we see also that uh, Scholz and Macron have come out with very strong statements um, against decoupling. Um, uh, from uh, from China uh, after her Davos speech and uh, and uh, and after some of the uh, you know dynamics that we have seen uh, in the United States over over um, uh, uh, suspected uh, spy balloons and uh, and repercussions uh, from from those dynamics uh, uh, that might you know sort of sort of accelerate a, uh, a sort of a tech export moratorium. Um, Visa uh, vis a vis China. Um, so there's um, there's there's a lot in flux. I you know I will just say that uh, that the European Commission is li has limited competence on many of the issues that uh, von der Leyen has made uh, rhetorical commitments on. Um, in uh, while she was in DC, uh, she, her inner circle of advisors uh, is 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 a is a circle of security experts, security minded people who uh, she brought from the Defense Ministry of of Germany uh, to Brussels. Those are not Brussels bureaucrats. Um, they are they are not uh, economic policy experts, and uh, it is sometimes difficult to get the messages through uh, to her. Um, you know, in terms of uh, what what her competence and responsibilities are, and and so we'll we'll uh, we'll we'll have more information on 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 these di these dynamics and conversations uh, um, uh, next week, uh, end of next week, when 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 the when the European leaders come to Brussels. One potential game changer on the Europe. Uh, China side, Max, is the, you know, whether or not China will provide lethal assistance to Russia. And we know that she is headed to Russia next week. Um, do if if we and, and there has been some reporting about China's provision of um, rifles and other things. So they've obviously inched right up to this line. Um, and I wonder if you think if they do go ahead and provide lethal assistance, whether that really would be a game changer for Europe? How, how, I mean, what's your sense of how Europe would respond in that scenario? Um, so great, great question. And I do think that this is the, the big potential X factor uh, in this conflict. Uh, one of my colleagues, Michael Kimmage, uh, noted, uh, I think quite astutely, that wars are basically, um, you know, they, they pit uh, defense industrial complexes against each other. And Ukraine, Russia versus Ukraine plus the West uh, puts Russia in a very bad position. And I think one of the things we're seeing is Russian, the quality of Russia's military equipment is declining. While if the West continues to support Ukraine militarily, the quality of Ukraine's military equipment is, is improving. Uh, and that's a good trend for the Ukrainians. And there's uh, challenges for Russia in maintaining their uh, their ammunition stockpiles, their artillery, the rate of fire. China can solve all those problems. 
Um, and I think, uh, you know, right now, I think it's both important for this is where you can send mixed signals. And sometimes it's okay to not always be totally aligned diplomatically. And what I mean by that is, look, I think Europe should both signal to China that this would have uh, massive repercussions for their for uh, Europe Chinese relations, and I think it would in a way that if you look at you know the reaction of Europe, uh, no one predicted, for instance, over the last year that Germany would get it would reduce its end its reliance on Russian natural gas, and the European response to this war has been far stronger than I think Europeans anticipated, and I think if China is then fueling a war against what is a war against European security, uh, I think the response from Europe would be uh, really strong, and this would have uh, tremendous repercussions for uh, Sino-European relations. That said, it might be the, the, not the worst time for you know a little bit of uh, distancing between Macron and maybe Biden on China, where to have the Chinese think that maybe they could wedge uh, Europe and the United States, that, oh, well, we don't want to completely destroy our relationship with Europe. There's a potential there. And I don't really think there is, but it's good for them to probably think that. Uh, so my hope is that uh, is that she is going uh, as a sort of a visit, that the Russians are quite upset with the Chinese. I would imagine the Russians are upset with the Chinese for not providing more. I think providing a little bit under the table is is, you know, they're trying to sort of do something, but we'll see. I mean, it is it is going to be a really significant uh, visit if if he doesn't provide uh, lethal assistance, not just for the war in Ukraine, but also for, I think, the broader global order, because it will have, I think, real ramifications. David, do you want to weigh in on that, too? I mean, in ter- like, what would you anticipate Europe's response to be in that scenario? Oh, um, I, I have no doubt that in the in the second that uh, it is there's uh, actual evidence of any significant legal um, uh, assistance, you know, uh, uh, provision of 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 legal military aid uh, from China to uh, to to uh, to Russia, um, that uh, the European Union would fundamentally um, uh, change its its China policy. Um, that that they, I, I, I have no no doubt about it. I think there's a worry that uh, that this could possibly happen. Um, but at the same time, uh, I think there's also um, a, a very sober assessment of the probability of this happening. And uh, and uh, it, it is rather unlikely that uh, China will do so. And uh, and they, you know, we what is uh, somewhat what I find somewhat curious, if I may say, is the is the the rumors uh, that are being spread uh, from from U.S. intelligence uh, on, on this. Uh, there have been um, there have been such rumors um, in the at the beginning of the war. Um, they they are reoccurring now, or they have reoccurred now. They have been walked back in 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 both instances, and so that that creates a bit of confusion. Um, and of course, anxiety among among res- the, the the respective actors here on the European side, but it also um, it it also uh, creates a bit of a of, of more of a European uh, calm uh, position or, or or analysis on on this. I mean, in saying, you know, I would, once we see evidence, uh, we will uh, make up our mind, uh, and and it, this will be a, a, a you know a very very seminal moment in in European in, in EU China relations. Um, that the Chinese will regret, um, but 
we will wait until we see that evidence and uh, it has not been provided yet. So um, I, I think that's where we are. Yeah, all good points. Um, Jim, you get the last question because we're recording at St. Patrick's Day and I know David is wanting to get out to go drink green beer, do something fun. <laughs> I'll just say that here in Paris, I don't think they celebrate uh, St. Patrick's Day. But they celebrate lots of other things every weekend, so um, they don't they don't necessarily have to have just one day. Uh, but um, uh, just a real quick question for both of you uh, back on this uh, idea about providing lethal. Do you think that um, do you, is, how how red a line is it when it comes to lethal? I mean, uh, tanks, uh, fighter aircraft, uh, real kinetic stuff. That's a game changer, as you are both pointing out. That's a seminal. Uh, break. Um, but there's there's a lesser aspect of it, too. I mean, I think they are providing assistance. In fact, in fact we all of us have mentioned it a little bit. They, they are providing some non-lethal through third parties or, you know, uh, but um, I mean, something like a drone, a civilian drone, uh, or uh, is that, where's the line in terms of lethal where we're going to, or is this one of these things where we'll know it when we see it? Uh, what but just what do you think the threshold yeah. is yeah i think i think there is a bit of we'll know it when we see it but I, I what i would say is i think the chinese have gone up to the line uh there's a lot of chinese uh exports into russia that are you know essentially replacing a lot of the western uh, uh products that were uh flowing into russia the are that our export controls have, have helped uh limit uh, so, you know, Chinese products in, are not necessarily violating sanctions, but getting very close. There, no doubt, has been in some degree of smuggling this political story about uh, some sort of smaller and lethal. But I think when we start seeing artillery where, you know, Chinese missile, Chinese uh, artillery uh, and ammunition and other things like that are, are, are killing Ukrainians. Uh, and I think that's that's the are they killing Ukrainians, enabling Russia to maintain its 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 rate of fire its ability to kind of barrage ukrainian positions uh then i think at that point um it's a real outrage and i think uh just to david's point i think one of the things that the administration has done throughout this conflict is really take an innovative approach to uh, intelligence this is something andrea has done a, a lot of uh, work on and knows a lot about uh but you know when the secretary of state goes out uh, on a sunday show and like raises a five alarm fire that uh, the Chinese are really thinking about providing massive amounts of lethal assistance to Russia. It pretty, you know, we know that that's probably, you know, being considered and we are trying to likely, we, the United States trying to deter that from happening. Now, the fact that it hasn't happened yet, I think is a, a good sign. And this is hopefully something that doesn't happen, but, uh, but this is where I think uh, signaling from Europe, um, both in the potential costs of this, but also, you know, I don't think it's, again, the worst thing to indicate that uh, there's, there's still a chance for a, a strong economic relationship between Europe and China, even if that's not what is in right now the broader long-term interests of what the U.S. is trying to push Europe toward. Yeah, I think it, I mean, it has been an innovative policy tool throughout this entire conflict. And I think what the fear what the U.S. administration, the intelligence community was seeing were deliberations about provision of aid and also some uh, illicit um, imports of 
I don't know, drones and rifles and other things. And so I think what the administration was really concerned about is that Russia or that China would have its cake and eat it too, that it would kind of build goodwill, provide a minimal amount of lethal assistance to China or to Russia with plausible deniability and still be able to claim to the Europeans and others that we're a responsible actor. Look, we just published our peace plan. So I think they really wanted to make sure that China couldn't have it both ways. But but I I mean, and then this is really the final question is, um, do you think, David, that from Xi Jinping's perspective, that he thinks that Europe would take a harsh response? Or do you think he believes there's enough daylight or that the relationship is too important to the Europeans that the European response wouldn't actually be all that significant? And I, I, I maybe that's not a fair question. It's asking you to say what you think she thinks, but... <laughs> Um, well, you know, I've engaged in in, in so much uh, speculation about uh, security uh, policy in this in this in this, in this wonderful session that uh, you know why not go the extra uh, the extra mile? Just go um, all the so way. I, but but I, I I will I will I will now you I can will, be a China uh, expert too. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, but uh, but I will just uh, just say that uh, if if the European response to to the war uh, in Ukraine has given uh, any indication to the world of how quickly um uh, the the regional powers in, in in Europe can shift and will make themselves independent of imports of of or will uh, you know rupture um uh, uh, economic relationships with uh, with 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 a very close by actor that they are immensely dependent on have been immensely dependent on then uh, I, I think the the message is, is, is the message is quite is quite clear uh, Germany moved uh, within a year from from what was called uh, import dependence on natural gas uh, to zero uh, percent uh, import share. So this is uh, this 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 hopefully sends a signal to any any other foreign actor. I will you know would just like to uh, you know add one little point on what, what on on lethal aid um, uh, to assistance from China to Russia. Um, it, it is really a blurry line. We have uh, we have Greek uh, we have Greek tankers. Uh, uh, so, transporting russian oil uh this is not covered by uh by by the sanctions we have a very strong um uh, trade relationship still between india and uh, and and russia um so the task is really to uh to you know get rid of these uh, uh these economic relations or these economic activities uh, that are still ongoing and uh, and 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 pull um, uh, you know, cooperation partners uh, of, of Russia away from uh, from from these economic relationships, but offer them better alternatives. Uh, and and I, I'm not sure that uh, that economic sanctions um, will will uh, will do uh, that job. Uh, I think positive positive incentives, uh, um, you know, and positive alternatives uh, might uh, might increase the likelihood uh, that we succeed on that front. Well, this was wonderful. Um, thank you both for joining us. Um, and uh, hopefully both David and Jim, you can go out and enjoy St. Patrick's Day, even if it's not being celebrated. And then Max and I will be shortly after you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts brought to you by the Transatlantic Security Team at the Center for a New American Security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate and review Brussels sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.